Before we get to today's show, we've got a special announcement. More of an opportunity, really. We're guessing that some of our Thinking Out Loud listeners are fans of learning. Well, if you love to learn, this opportunity's for you. We're partnering with Right On Mission to give away a Theology in Evangelism course. Taught by Dr. Sarah Sumner, this course teaches students how to engage non-Christians and nominal Christians alike in theological conversations that are genuine exchanges and not prepackaged formulas for evangelism. This course is for anyone who takes seriously Jesus' mandate for us to go into the world and make disciples. The class runs from March 7th to April 29th. We'll drop links with all of the details in the show notes for this episode. Interested? Here's what you need to do. First, make sure you're following us. Next, give Thinking Out Loud a shout out to your followers on social media, and we'll randomly pick one of you for the course giveaway by March 5th. Be sure to include a link to our podcast, along with the hashtag Thinking Out Loud. Make sure you tag us so we keep track. Again, all you have to do is give Thinking Out Loud a shout out on your socials to put your name in the hat. One last thing, you'll need to be a Christian in order to take this course, for the simple reason that a course on the theology of evangelism won't make much sense to someone who isn't already a part of the church. We look forward to hearing from you. This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast about current events and Christian hope. Have a hard time putting those two things together? You're not alone. Our timelines may be filled with bad news, but Christ remains on his throne. So what does it mean to live in the light of that truth, rather than the shadow of our never-ending dumpster fires? That's the question animating this conversation between Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister, two Christian apologists who believe that true hope and realism go hand in hand. So let's think out loud together about current events and Christian hope. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And we have a special guest with us today that I'm absolutely delighted to have here, and it's somebody that I've been wanting to hear from for a long time, but particularly on the issue that we want to discuss today. I think many of you, if you're like me, have been looking at the headlines of the Russia-Ukraine uh, war that's happening right now and felt that maybe some of the things that we're seeing are a bit simplistic in their description and aren't la and are lacking the proper historical context for me to really make sense of this. And so then you kind of go hunting around the, the internet trying to figure out uh, how do we how do we put all of this together and what is Putin wanting to negotiate on and what does Ukraine have to offer and all of this or you know, kind of the bombastic, you know, Putin's lost his mind and is a lunatic. And you're like, well, maybe that's not quite right. What's really going on here? And so we have Stuart McAllister with us today, who uh, also is the director of ministry at Thinking Out Loud and many other things. But one of his other claims to fame on this show is that he is the father responsible for Cameron McAllister. And so we'll let Cameron uh, give him an introduction here as we get ready to embark on this journey. And Cameron, maybe you could add why you think your dad is uh, uniquely equipped, as I believe he is, to help us think through some of this. Yeah, well, so obviously it's wonderful to have dad on the show. And part of what I think makes dad uniquely equipped for this is his very pronounced historical consciousness. And that actually began in a very visceral way. He can say a little bit more about this himself, of course, but when dad became a Christian, he became involved, he was a, a missionary in Vienna, Austria, and at the time he was working with Operation Mobilization, and they were very 
they were concentrating on getting Bibles into communist nations. And I think that this was the beginning of dad's real interest in history. Essentially, the question, what would make an ideology like this take root in whole nations? And that was kind of the beginning. So, I mean, he, here, here he was on the ground walking through these places and in danger of arrest. And sometimes he actually was arrested. And so, I think there's, there's a real personal introduction that happens for him when it comes to some of these Eastern nations. But ever since then, he's been an absolute voracious reader of history in particular. I would, I would think it would, it's safe to say that history is kind of dad's favorite place to go when, when it comes to reading and research. And so he has an extensive knowledge of Ukraine, the history of the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, and some of the, there's, I mean, it's a very complex relationship, which is why you see so many people scrambling to try to make sense of what's going on right now. But he's also just, he's a marvelous person. I know I'm biased, but yeah, it's great to have him here. And so I'm going to call him Dad. His name is Stuart. But Dad, just to be, before we launch into the subject, would you tell us just a little bit about yourself? I've given a little bit of your background, but just a bit about yourself and then maybe what you're doing right now and how people can follow you right now. Thank you, Cameron. <clears throat> Thank you, Nathan. Good to be with you both and with the people here on the podcast. Yes, I, uh, of course, hail from Scotland. I was born in Glasgow uh, in the post-war years. So part even of the desire of history was um, growing up in a family where my dad had been in the Royal Air Force and Britain was still um, working through the experience of the post-war years and the, the end of empire for Britain as a, throughout my years, I saw that it progressively decline. Um, I became a Christian in my early 20s and uh, then sought to follow the Lord you know, fairly seriously into mission right away. And over the years, I've always been involved in some form of evangelism or some kind of communication working with churches where we're trying to always integrate the faith in our life. So after many years also in apologetics, I'm now working with also Ken Boa in Reflections Ministries and where we're taking a lot more focus on spiritual formation, but the, very much the same ideas of worldview, thought, and what it is that shapes us. So as I come to this conversation and looking at these events around us, uh, around the world, and particularly the role of Russia and the Ukraine, um, it's something we've been watching for a long time, but, but again, something that is profoundly disturbing, and yet, in a, in a sense, almost uh, inevitable, given some of the types of patterns that have been unfolding. Well, let's, so, let's zoom out for just a second, though. And I mean, and yeah, Nathan, did you have a, an initial question to fire off there? Well, I, I think I was interested in, he was talking kind of the, the post-war Scottish upbringing, just maybe it'd be fun to get an initial, you know, so you go from Scotland into Eastern Europe. I mean, I'm sure that's whiplash. Uh, yeah. What what was your first read on the, on the whole atmosphere that you're stepping into? I mean, I think for those who haven't traveled in that region, there's a, a very distinct and different feel about it. And so could you just kind of paint that picture? Um and oh, then yeah. I think maybe it'd be helpful yeah. to know where all you spent jail time in Eastern Europe as well as a background of this. Well, the, the, the journey began with me from going, first of all, to Belgium and then driving, driving after a conference all the way to Vienna, Austria. And of course, 
as you're going further east, it becomes very different, both in landscapes, cultures, you pass through Germany into Austria. And then the initial foray into Eastern Europe took us into what was then Yugoslavia, which was still a communist country, one of the softer ones on the in the communist bloc. But I remember the initial experience as a young person driving up and seeing, first of all, these barriers and, you know, these gates in front of us, guard towers and guards with Kalashnikovs, and then the hammer and sickle symbols, as well as all the signs of communist propaganda around you. So as we entered into then uh, northern Yugoslavia and then proceeded into what would be called the Balkans, um, it was like going back in time. It was a world that I had never seen, but what struck me very clearly was the dominance of like loudspeakers on buildings and everywhere you heard uh, occasional um, like martial music or announcements. And of course there were banners about um, world peace and all this kind of thing and proclaiming the, the, the communist agenda. So very much felt that I had entered an alien world by there was a literal iron curtain and having trans and actually gone through that you were in another world. It wasn't all bad. There were shops, there were people, but it was vastly different from the West. And then immediately there was an atmosphere that you could sense, a kind of a, a brooding sense of just oppression. People were quieter. They didn't talk as much. They were kind of much more withdrawn, which was understandable because they were being watched in many respects. So it was, a, it was just a different, and of course my mind was reeling to try and understand what does this mean? Yeah. And I'm, Dad, I have some some strange memories, even as a as a young boy, where we were in nations that I I believe were just coming out of communism. Whether we were going to, we we went to I think as a Czechos what was at the time Czechoslovakia. I remember driving through there. Correct. Yeah, and 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 noticing that yeah those the proliferation of speakers and it made it puts me in mind of a book that you had recommended to kind of capture that atmosphere a little bit and that was Sheslov Miosh's The Captive Mind mm -hmm. where he kind of takes you into that place at a, on a very granular level mm -hmm. so obviously i mean this is very this is deeply personal to you as well and that that that's how this begins yeah but i let's, my, let's yeah sorry from my perspective yeah, you're exactly right i think there was a I felt a very strong emotional bonding to Eastern Europe. I mean, I know that mm. um, even this summer, having been back in Poland, the Slavic peoples, there was something where there was a, a very strong heartfelt connection. And I still love if I hear Slavic voices or, you know, it just it stirs something in my soul. So I, I, there are beautiful people. There are very gifted people. And they have suffered intensely, um, not least in the 20th century. Yeah. And I'm so... I want to zoom out just for a second for all of our listeners because I came across something on you know not too long ago on social media and this is a person I'm I know who's quite educated but basically just panicking saying I am trying desperately to understand what is going on in terms of the the history here and I can't figure anything out help and I think this person was speaking for a lot of a lot of folks right now because there are a lot of, you know, obviously descriptions of what's going on on the ground. You can read today about how the basically there a lot of the the Russian tanks are stalled on bad ground, and there are differing numbers of of you know casualties that you're going to get. And there's there's a lot there's a lot to pay attention to there. But I'm wondering, Dad, if you can give us in kind of broad strokes 
some of the history of the conflict between Ukraine and, and why Putin cares so much about that territory, why he sees it as so strategically valuable, and what's actually going on here? Sure. I mean, there obviously is, is many layers to this, but I think let's talk just initially about the 20th century. In terms of Russia, Russia, of course, at the beginning of the century was an empire. It was under the Tsar and Tsar Nicholas it ruled over the territory that covered what is today the Ukraine. And Ukraine is the center, particularly Kiev, of what uh, Russia became because the conversion to orthodoxy took place in around 1050 uh, in, in Kiev, where the, the then ruler, Vladimir, I believe it was, um, embraced orthodoxy as the religion after having sent emissaries out to look for a religion for the people. So the 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 Ukrainians and the Russians are at the, as a kind of a uh, although differentiated had a relationship of bringing seeing themselves as a part of the new Christendom as Rome collapsed as the invasion of the Muslims in what was then the Latin side of uh, or sorry the Turkey and Constantinople there was this embracing that there was this 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 vision of Christendom that they would carry the torch of the Christian faith into the the world. Now we have to fast forward, there's a lot that went on in between there of many invasions, differences, but Ukraine was always a contested territory. It had also been ruled by sometime by both Polish and Lithuanian rulers and had a bent toward both the West and the East. But in terms of its Slavic identity, it was considered a big part of the sort of Russian and Ukrainian together, the Slavic history. In the 20th century, when the, when the Bolshevik Revolution came around, it was it was initially, it, although it was a still semi-independent and had the Ukrainian Communist Party, it was under the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and so it was a part of the Soviet Union, and therefore it was part of that composite whole. The First World War, of course, destroyed the Habsburg Empire. It destroyed the Ottoman Empire. It destroyed the, the Russian Empire. You then had the Communist state. But in those in-between years, and for particularly for Ukraine, as the collectivization was forced upon the Ukrainian people, in the, the period of the 20s leading up to the 30s, there were two big things. One was a, an imposed, um, what became a famine that resulted, resulted in the death of millions of Ukrainians as the communist system was imposed. And secondly was Stalin's... Um, trial looking for spies and cleaning out kulaks, which wiped out a lot of people who were just arrested en masse uh, and slaughtered. So you've got the First World War, the collapse of the empire, you've got Ukraine becoming a part of the communist world, and then of course you have then the German invasion in 1941 in which Barbarossa began, and that was a war of annihilation. Now initially the Ukrainians saw the Germans as liberators, thinking they came, and so there was sympathy to the Germans. But of course, the Nazi brutality, seeing the Slavs as untermensch, as subhumans, they brutalized them, and then they became a part of the wars. And of course, the whole violence that uh, resulted in about 30 million deaths overall in Russia and the Ukraine. The large Jewish population, of course, was um, slaughtered, but You'd know that it, particularly in Kiev, of course, is the scene of one of the greatest slaughters of Babi Yar, where about 34, 35,000 people were killed over like 48 hours in, in, the, in Kiev. So 
their history then, post-war, of course, we can race down to the present time, to Chernobyl and all of that in the collapse of the communist system. But the Ukrainians, have a, they have a fierce national identity. They do speak a language that is similar to Russian. It is not Russian. It would be like saying that Canadians and Americans are the same thing. The Ukrainians and the Russians are not the same. But for Putin, they are a part of a, a, the, the previous Russian empire. And to reestablish a global, his vision for an extended, recovered Russia is to incorporate them back again into the homeland in his mind. I think this is an interesting angle you're bringing here, Stuart, because, um, yeah, there are a couple of trains of thought here. You know, one is, uh, Putin's crazy. <laughs> one is, uh, this is all about NATO and figuring out the boundaries of modern who does what. And there's a long, long conversation. I think we'll get into there. What you're pointing to is more of a, a nostalgia which I think is hard for Americans to grapple with because, you know, you're saying, well, in the year 1050, uh, you know, most Americans don't have that type of uh, historical depth to be, you know, we're, we're, we're very new on the scene. And so a, 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 multi, a millennium of history doesn't exist for us in the same way that it would there. So I think that's just really fascinating to think about the, the, the cultural weight that is is still part of that. And I wonder if there's a tension between sort of a, how much does that still matter? Because as Westerners, we kind of, it's a more of a radical individualism, forget the past. Here we are now mm. for, for that region of the world. Do you, do you think that what you're saying there is just interesting historically, or do you th still think it really does carry a far more weight there than we attribute to the history here? I think, Nathan, you've hit the nail in the head, and it's not really as Westerners, it's particularly as Americans. We are very ahistorical. Our own struggle with memory and history is very clear today when we look at the life of African Americans and Native people of this country and how we've dealt with history, and almost our struggle to re refuse to deal with our own history or face it with, 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 uh, with open courage and honesty. In Europe, being a, a Russian or a Pole or a Frenchman is an ethnic identity that is very, very deep. It goes back usually hundreds, sometimes thousands of years, and they see themselves and their language and their culture as incredibly unique and, and is very central to their identity. So there is a deeper historic consciousness. And with the experience of uh, the hundreds of years of the battles with Islam on Eastern Europe back and forward, which only ended uh, at the gates of Vienna, um, and uh, by a Polish army rescuing the, the Viennese in the West from the attack of Islam that would have conquered the whole of Europe. So there's deep historical memories, and it's built into language and culture. But let's go back to Russia particularly. Russians are a very, and, and Ukrainians, these are a very ancient people with thousands of years and with poetry and songs that define them. Now, Putin, people may call him a madman or whatever, but the fact is Putin is also a product of history in his time, both as a KGB agent where he served in Eastern Germany during the communist years as a KGB um, operative and leader, and where he was also trained by Yuri Andropov, who was one, one of the earlier uh, presidents of the former Soviet Union, but was also the head of the KGB. Putin's vision in the last number of years, there's a name that is not being mentioned, but if you Google this, there's a man called Alexander Dugin, D-U-G-I-N, 
And Dugin was a professor in uh, Moscow University. He's the founder of the National Bolshevik Party. Uh, his, one of his most recent books looks at the American Greeset, Great Reset versus what he calls the Great Awakening. And this man has been preaching for decades on Russian nationalism, on the role of Eurasia, of Russia and Turkey, and perhaps even linking with China, and pushing back against Westernism, America, and the European Union. So his vision is very pronounced, it's very clear, and he's been a lecturer at the Duma, the Russian parliament, and he's been a consultant at a very deep level to the Russian military. So this isn't just an ideology, this is a deeply ingrained mythology and a belief. And this, what they're doing, what I believe he's doing, is taking a gamble to re-establish the Russian footprint, the Russian empire, and their role in rescuing the world from Western and other types of decadence. And so, that, so on that note, Dad, why is the Ukraine seen as such an important location in refusing that Westerniz Westernization for Putin? Because I think a lot of people are wondering why, yeah, what the significance is of that territory geographically for him. Well, of course, it has many natural resources, but I don't think even that comes into it. I think the issue has to do with the Slavic past. It has to do with the fact that at least a large percentage of the Ukrainians, particularly the Western half, were wanting freedom, as we know from the Euromaidan uh, uh, that happened a few years ago, they wanted to be a part of the European Union. They want a democratic life. They want a free society. On the eastern side, you have a country, and the countries, by the way, kind of divided spiritually between a Catholic Uniate Church and a more Orthodox Church. So one that looks to the West and still relates to Western, particularly the Vatican and so forth, and the other that looks, of course, continually to the east. The closer you are to the Russian border, the closer you are for relationships. But even there, significant part of the population, although speaking Slavic, loving Orthodoxy, still want to be Ukrainian. There are separatist movements. I think for, um, for Putin and for these people like uh, Dugin, it's to extend the previous territory because that is part of the land. It's Mother Russia. It's it's our territory. It belongs to us viscerally and and existentially and 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 therefore, even though it costs, it would cost much blood to get it. It's taking a parental patriarchal role that I think Putin, in one sense, is acting like a modern czar. He sees himself as a chosen one. He sees himself as re-establishing the honor. And when you go back to the Nazis, and some of these things are, are, are difficult, I know, not to say compare them directly to Hitler, but Hitler's nationalist vision for Germany, the racial purity, the belief in Germanic domination and racial control and his willing to, willingness to dominate control because this was the superior right, some of those components are in this, which is bringing the Ukraine back into, on his terms, Mother Russia, and bringing them back under our nurturing care so that we can then extend our, and also on the socio-political side, uh, making sure that Europe and NATO do not come up to our borders and threaten us. Remembering that Russia was invaded twice in the 20th century and understandably have a certain paranoia about that. So actually, can you, let's talk about that just for another moment, because I think that paranoia on my generation is largely lost of, you know, the European Union is a threat to Putin? Really? 
Uh, you know, so in our living memory, we wouldn't see that. We would say, uh, you're the one who's, you know, firing missiles in civilian, you know, residences right now. How did we, how do we get to that? Um, so, so you're, you're giving me, you're giving us very helpfully this kind of idea of, of Russian nationalism and then the, the concept of NATO and the European Union and obviously a, a collective identity that is bigger than the individual nation and this formation of an organization. Ukraine wants to be part of that because they're saying, hey, you know, we need protection here. And Russia is saying, well, that's actually aggression on your side. So how do we balance out who's the aggressor here? What are the legitimate fears? How do we, you know, if, I don't remember the Cold War for 45 years, NATO being an enemy of, you know, Russia or Soviet Union. How does all that, tell, tell, I feel like I'm missing variables here and putting this whole picture together. Sure, there's the nostalgia and the yeah. nationalism, but then there's the strategic <laughs> missile placement too that I can't figure out. Uh, it seems like there's equal opportunity for some finger pointing here. Well, there's, there, there is if we look at it in a short-term lens. I mean, that's the tendency. We're looking for simplistic answers to very long-term historical events and movements. But let's first of all talk about culture. The biggest part of this is a part of the postmodern uh, revival of nationalism, localism, and individual identity politics. What Putin and many people um, of that tradition do not want is Western liberalism. So the idea of an open society where gay life is celebrated, where any type of sexuality, and where the idea there is no God, there is no authority, where families could take any shape. And so just basically born to shop, democracy and liberalization are the vision. That is what both America and um, uh, the European Union are seen as representing. So American film and television is looked at and is imported, but is it is also looked at with a certain contempt of uh, a historical mindless materialism and indulgence. Now, the Russians indulge as well. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of drinking, partying, and all that on the other side. But there's this underlying sense of that there is a God in heaven, that there are some right and wrongs, and there is a moral structure and a moral vision. So I would say the, the fundamental moral difference between the West and the East is a huge part of that. That's one. So now we go to the European Union, which is, is essentially was an economic uh, and uh, political uh, system that was designed to spread a particular vision of humanity, particularly gained on, uh, uh, rooted in a liberal vision of humanity, democratization, and a spread of a rule-based society, very much driven by French and German interaction which as you know, Britain and several others have chafed against and rather than being under a corporate rule, have decided to go back to their own um, more uh, national rule and more control over their own affairs. As that was moving up to the borders of Eastern Europe, the countries that were liberated from communist rule were also concerned, A, to build their economies, A, to pursue their own identity, or second B, and then thirdly, so you like that A, B, three, um, the third thing was then to... Um, uh, think of security because now they realized we still have a big brother across there and although we have no aggressive intentions towards them historically they have proven to have aggressive intentions towards us so in the post-war years in the collapse of these systems in the rebirth of these nations from 1989 to the present and that's only about 30 years the russian mafia and crime has been a major problem exported from russia into these countries, sex trafficking, drugs, 
violence and the Russian mafia are an extremely dangerous group. In this time also, as people were looking at, uh, at security issues, the desire to have military, military packs meant that the desire was from NATO. Now, switch to the Russian side. They see a European Union coming up to their borders and they can somewhat cope with that. But then they see possibly a, mil a military alliance also closing, which means that we have military forces in our doorstep. But I don't believe that can be used as a pretext. Most of these things, so I hear people now saying, aha, we, we push the bear. The aggression is not starting from the Western side. But there are historical forces, I think, that help us understand at least why it's happening. The Polish people, the Bulgarians, the Romanians, the Lithuanians, the Estonians, who were under Russian occupation, have a right to their national identity and freedom. They have a right to protection. They're too small to resist Russia. They want to be part of an alliance. Russia says, no, you can only be in alliances on our terms. So now we have a huge political problem. Married to this cultural problem and the, uh, that, that lies at the root of that, the fundamentally different view and vision of life itself. I'm wondering here, Yeah, Dad. can we just... Let's, yeah. Well, just before you go there, Cameron, let, let me just put an exclamation mark on something that I, I think I heard Stuart saying there. And that is, is that Western culture is the threat to Russia, not Western missiles. Yes. Primarily. That's correct. It starts there. And so I think that's kind of an aha moment, hopefully for a lot of us thinking about that, that, um, yeah, just don't miss that as you go past it, that that's because he, he labeled that as a, the missiles were C, yes. right? So there's economics in between there, but the cultural element is where the existential threat is felt to Russia. See, so anyway, Cameron, me, you were saying, let me, uh, and then Cameron jump in, but let me just zero in on that because this is equally the problem that we have faced with Islam. You see, people wanted glo globalization has been was happening for a number of years, but what people were saying, and the Chinese have been the the clear example is, we want globalization without westernization. The Muslims were saying we want globalization without westernization. We in America and the West, we thought the two were synonymous, and we have been blind to our own cultural imperialism. Now that wasn't necessarily aggressive; it was a blindness, and I think a stupidity on our part. These other nations are also wanting to export their culture. But what we are doing is we're trashing our own as we're now being willing to embrace, but we don't see the threat factor. So I think the Western cultural issue and its increasing liberalization and its turn to an increasing hedonism, the very chaos socially that we see in our own countries, why would someone see that as an advantage to live by? Our view of freedom has turned into hedonistic indulgence and fragmentation of families, rising suicide, opioid epidemics, and all kinds of things. What is it that we are supposed to be modeling for these other people? Yeah, and I think it. my mind, I'm glad you mentioned the, the Muslim response as well to American culture, because that's exactly where my mind was going as well. And so, Dad, I'm wondering, so you're, you're highlighting what is essentially the cult cultural decadence of the West. And I think it's it's difficult to dispute that. So when we look at the kind of the, the conflicts that are erupting here, I think a significant factor here, and I'm just wondering if you can weigh it, weigh in on this, has to do with the fact that, and I'm going to put it in very basic and simple terms, that we in America, and maybe more broadly, we in the West, 
many of us have a very hard time imagining that people wouldn't want what we want. But that seems to be one of the basic points of deep misunderstanding that animates a lot of very shaky foreign policy in the history of of the United States in particular, where we have this kind of interventionist approach. And there seems to be an underlying assumption, not only, you know, that we take for granted the inherent goodness of liberal democracy in our way of life, but that other people will naturally want this and want to embrace this. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier about deep historical consciousness and roots that are spiritual and powerful and have been there for thousands of years. So I think, I mean, do you think that that might be a factor as well when we look at the news and when we try to give really kind of quick response as well? This is, you know, this is a tactical response to, you know, NATO and Westernization and the European Union. Yeah. It's without doubt that I think a couple of things. So first, our cultures, you know, we we affirm and value deeply our freedoms, and I don't want to trash our own heritage. I think we have a problem because we've had free. We we view particularly laterally. We take negative freedom over positive freedom, and we can't put the two together. So our view of freedom is undoing us. But there are still many many good things both in our history and our culture, and that need to be revived and worked on. And restored, and I think that that can happen. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there's many people I go to when I was traveling in India and traveling in the Middle East, in Malaysia, in many countries. There are people who had no desire whatsoever to come to the West or to be a part of American or British or Western lifestyle at all. Some that would ask these mysterious questions. I remember friends in Peru who materially were far worse off than we were or I was and who had uh, access to very little in terms of what I would think were the necessities of life, but they thoroughly enjoyed and did not imagine under any reason whatsoever that they would want what we want. So this this idea that we have our, our wealth and our power and all that is something that's universally desired is not true. I think it's uh, the, the Scottish poet Rabbi Burns used to say, uh, oh, to see ourselves as others see us. So we as Americans and Westerners need to be less imperialistic in the wrong sense and less self-assured. Affirm all of our treasures, our riches, our history. Share them, but, but see the treasures and the glories of other nations, their cultures, their history, their pride in their place, in their music, their poetry, their st- the, all that they have. Some of it is vile, and like some of ours is vile. And so it's not all that we can be embraced. But they have every reason to want that. And our desire, our danger is a kind of missionary materialism or missionary liberalism where we feel that we have to somehow export what we have. And if they live like us, then they'll all live happily ever after. We're all missionaries in one sense. So, I, yeah, let, let me pick, pick apart something there. So uh, Cameron and I were discussing a lecture by... John Mersheimer, University of Chicago, uh, political scientist in, from 2015, uh, gaining quite a lot of traction on um, YouTube, actually. And the, the title of it is, is The Ukraine is the West's Fault. <laughs> and so he's, he's arguing this from a, a political strategy of saying, you know, at some point, um, you know, China's going to be our problem. We need Russia. What we really want is a neutral re- Ukraine that um, Putin basically wants a neutral Ukraine or he's going to wreck it. 
And this is all from 2015. This is just after Crimea has been annexed and, you know, you have the rebellions there and the and the turmoil. And so looking at it very strategically, I think you also see like from a military socioeconomic category, which I think if you've been listening up to this point, you're, you'll hear Stuart saying uh, the economic part isn't really the heart here. Um, but then you so but then, you know, NATO's in response in response to Russia's demands are like, look, the Ukrainian people have the sovereign right to choose which way they want to go here. Um, so how do we, I mean, it seems like we kind of have three categories at play here, right? We have, we're talking about America and the West, uh, NATO, let's use that. And then Russia, and we're seeing the perspective there, but then you have this country caught in the middle that has tremendous internal diversity on a lot of it. I, I think far more Ukrainian identity than it did even 10 years ago, maybe. Um, so how, how do we balance out? Like, okay, the Ukrainians want to do this. We're asking to join this. Uh, what does the U S have in that or how should we view that or be thinking about it? Um, I think we can quickly get on board of like, Hey, yeah, obviously you do have a neighbor who's a bit of a threat <laughs> because they're shelling your cities right now. We can see that. Um, so how, how, do, how are we to think of national sovereignty, um, while holding all of the complexities that you've, you've brought up and, and the design. Uh, I'm I'm struggling to to articulate my question, but I think, well, I think that struggle is where the heart of this confusion is. It is Nathan is, because we've, you, we we've does ent- that make sense at all? Well, we've entered the 20th century. We we all said that the nationalism was over, and then we went back to the idea of these big blocks, thinking that that would solve things, and that hasn't worked either. You've got a fundamental conflict at the human heart as to how do we get to decide our life? Who decides? Do the Ukrainian people? have the right to choose their own destiny and future? Um, Do the ones that don't want to be apart have the right to separate? Look at Brexit and the whole chaos in Britain in the last few years, and you can see how hard it is for people regionally and locally to agree on what is some higher unified whole that we should be a part of. And then when you move out to the global sphere, we're then thinking of of national security issues or trade and economics and all these kind of factors that play in. I think at the heart of this, you're, you're being driven. America has interests. The West has interests in trade and economic and relationships. And we all want to live in a just, peaceful world. So trade and cultural exchange and free travel are all the kind of things we would want to have under normal circumstances. But other interests come in in which these political and social and military factors then weigh in and they begin to be barriers. And if there is a a strong nationalistic element or some other agenda going on, and let's remember the individual hearts. I mean, would we have had a Holocaust without Adolf Hitler? You know, I mean, they said there was a lot of anti-Semitism around, but it took someone like Hitler and the Nazi party to actually activate these things. So once you get human actors into the equation, you have their visions, their dreams. They're in charge of military establishments and vast economies, and they have wants and desires of their own. So even as we're looking at systemically and trying to work out all these factors, there is human will and human action in this. And I have to believe for us, again, as Christians, we've got to look at history and the interplay of what God is doing in all this. Um, I mean, obviously, history moves in the garden from uh, an original opening of a relationship, a fall, and then there is conflict from the book of Genesis that escalates. So somewhere in human history, these conflicts are going to be solved. We do not have the rational means or the power to figure all this out 
to work out all the equations, all the factors. But we have to sometimes just trust that God is acting even in the midst of this chaos. And Dad, so on that note, we're gonna we're gonna hey, fair warning, this is thinking out loud. So we're gonna ask you about hope here eventually in the midst of all of this. Okay. But let's before we do that, let's switch to the scary stuff briefly. Because a lot of people have a, a lot of anxiety on their on their hearts and minds right now. And so I'm wondering what specifically about this situation is so worrying right now from a global conflict perspective. We've we're, we're seeing pretty fairly extreme sanctions being imposed, but you have already mentioned, you've already complicated that by saying that economics is not going to be a central motivating factor here, and a lot of really incisive critics are saying that. So what what makes you the most worried as you look at this? When you have this degree of military conflict going on and you have a nuclear armed people and you have leaders that have no real moral compass and who have actually stated both verbally in other writings, and if you again go back to this guy like Alexander Dugan, who have encouraged the use of nuclear weapons and say just use them, they're there. So they have no qualms um, if you could imagine an Osama bin Laden with his finger on the trigger, he would have no qualms either. Um, the danger of an escalation because of a threat factor, maybe per, either they get too close to the Western countries and something happens there, or some military person makes a miscalculation, or uh, and which would then bring a strategic reaction. So these things are definitely possible in our time because these weapons exist. You can be sure that all are on very high alert on all sides because even though it might not be stated publicly, they have to watch with diligence because these things can be triggered very quickly. So yes, these are these are sobering factors. Um, the key again for, for uh, we hope that diplomacy and mind and prayer can intervene. We hope for more rational minds. We hope like the threat. We remember that in my generation, I lived under what we called the Mad Doctrine, which was mutually assured destruction. That if the Soviet Union launched its weapons, America had enough firepower in the West to destroy. So basically, we'd all die. Um, so sadly, although that sounds absolutely horrendous, we're kind of back in. Your younger generation did not, you grew up with this, but the, the it was still there, but it was silenced. It was pushed into the background. It never went away. So you're now experiencing what many people experienced in the 1950s and so forth. So here we are again. I, Stuart, I was reading a, um, <laughs> I think one of the frustrations, I was talking to a bunch of guys at church about this, is... In some ways, a conflict like this shows us the limitations of our own agency in many ways, because, you know, I was I saw a, a news article somewhere, you know, 10 things you can do to help the Ukrainians. And to, to be honest, they were pathetic. Um, you know, g- given what the crisis is right there, there actually isn't anything you can do to be helpful. Um, it, 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 that sounds weird to say it like that, but practically speaking for the average listener to this podcast right now. Um, you can't send enough bottled water to sort this situation out, you know? Um, so then people say, well, we're going to pray. And and now there are biblical and lots of people love to make fun of that. Um, and there are times in which that is silly. You know, James talks us through that, right? If there's a need that you can actually meet and you don't do it, um, shame on you. Um, but there are actual things where we've exhausted what we're politically, economically, uh, physically capable of 
we're doing the best that we can. You know, we often see this, I think, in a medical crisis. Look, we have the best medical care possible, and we don't know this cancer, you know. So in that context, well, in all contexts, prayer is not a silly thing. Um, it's not saying we don't do anything else, but it's saying we certainly do think, particularly, I think, when you talked about the individual elements that are involved here, of the individuals involved um, and what's going on there. Say a little bit more about how you see prayer as a realistic response to a global conflict. Well, I think it's not only realistic. If you look at the history of the Second World War or any wars, and you read particularly a lot of biographies, missionary biographies, uh, survivor stories, and all kinds of things, you find amazing testimonies of God at work in uh, uh, bomb shelters and people coming to faith and all kinds of things. We are already hearing stories. There is a very significant evangelical church in the Ukraine. Uh, many missionaries have been there. There's been a huge church planting movement that has spread. And there are many Ukrainian evangelical Christians who are still there. Pastors had to stay behind because no men could really leave the country. And some of their families have left, but the, the pastors are back on the ground. And we're hearing of prayer. When you read of um, the, a very famous book by called Reese Howell's Intercessor, during the Second World War, at the time of the advance, of the, the German advance, where they basically drove the British army to Dunkirk, everybody wonders in history, they came to a dead stop for a, a period of time, which allowed the whole mass evacuation of about 330,000 British and, and some French troops to Britain by a small boat armada that crossed the channel. What many people don't know is that at that time, there was a prayer meeting going on, a man uh, Reese Howells and the people at Swansea Bible College in London who are praying. And this is documented in the diary, a time of prayer, and they're praying through specific hours. And at those times, corresponding to their prayer time, the German army stopped. And there was given this, this gap. Now, people say, well, that's not an immediate correlation, but it's not insignificant either. So there are many, many times of people praying praying for the, the, the communication systems would break down, that people's lives would be saved, that things would happen, that God will open doors of rescue. It, it, we are called to pray for peace. We are called to pray for uh, men and women's lives. We are called to ask for thy kingdom come. It, for the Russians as well as the Ukrainians, for Russian soldiers who have been sent there that don't want to die and don't want to kill, but they're being forced by their country and who may have to give up their lives for something they don't believe in. So we pray for God's mercy and for God's grace for divine appointments. And I believe it does make a difference. Ultimately, God's there's something bigger at stake here, and we rest in the sovereignty of God, but we also ask him to intervene in mercy to overcome the evil of human hearts. Well, okay, Dad. So as we as we wrap this this up, we have talked, you have talked a lot about deep history, historical consciousness. And what's interesting about that, you mentioned our own national reckoning here in the United States that's taking place right now, and in some ways our real difficulty in dealing with our own past. I think one of, I've been saying this a little bit, quite a bit on the show actually recently, I think part of what's characterizing our moment right now, at least in, in America, is a growing recognition of the important of of the importance of historical consciousness. I don't think historical consciousness is growing yet. I think there's a recognition of its significance and importance and you're seeing that more and more in our discussions of racism and the treatment of minorities in the past in our nation. And that's a big factor here too. 
And when you were talking about mutually assured destruction and how many of people, me and you know Nathan's age, how we assumed, oh well, that's that's over. It's it, and you said it was it was never over. And I think about that the famous line from Faulkner where he says, "The past is never dead. The past isn't. It's not even past." And I keep thinking also of that. You know, that famous phrase from, and it's been coming up a lot lately from Francis Fukuyama, right? The end of history. Yeah. And it had to do with that real, that kind of optimism at the beginning there where where westernization seemed, globalization and really, yep. you know, a, sort of a, a thinly veiled cultural imperialism, which is, that's another really important point that you made, was happening. I'm wondering, though, is there a sense in which he was right to a degree? He wasn't obviously, you know... We never stop being situated. History never stops moving. But you can become ahistorical in your own posture and your thinking. And to a, to a significant degree, it does seem like that has that is what has happened in in the West and that in many of our many of our nations from a political standpoint. I think about that lecture that you and I were talking about, Nathan, where he pointed out that so many. If you go to Washington D.C. Everybody there thinks like a 21st century politician, and they think of all of these old conflicts over territory and the significance, maybe even the religious significance of this specific territory. They think of that as anachronistic. That's all over. But he just points out that's not the way the rest of the world thinks. So, But is there a, is there a sense in which Fukuyama and some of these guys were right in that we became so ahistorical that it kind of blinded us? To what's been going on around us? Yes, there was there was a couple of things. Just very quickly, one was that when Fukuyama wrote the end of history and the last man, the idea that we had arrived at liberal democracy as the triumph over particularly these totalitarian systems. Another book came out shortly around after that, around the same time, was Samuel Huntington, The Clash of Civilizations, and where there were a very different thesis where he saw what has tr more likely emerged, which was the regrouping of people into their ethnic and other cultural nationalisms, or at least their groupings, their regional groupings. And that has been a lot more formative, I think, in, in terms, both of these theses have had, have, have had val validity. But there was also a Balkan writer uh, about Misha Glenny who talked about the revenge of history. And so what we're seeing in, is that history never goes away. America and the West may have got lost in technology, materialism, and some kind of a global utopianism like Star Trek. We're all going to live happily ever after in some brave humanism. But the fact is that people are born locally. They have cultures. They have history. They have traditions. And they have long memories. And those memories are not to be ignored, and they will not go away, just like with a family. So we're, we must incorporate the value of localism, of, uh, of local voice, tribes, history, culture, and factor it in because we love people as they are. They are made in the image of God, by God, and have a distinct creation. So each has value. Every Russian, every Euro Ukrainian, every French, every Indonesian, every um, uh, person from Saudi Arabia, Saudi or whatever. Each is made in the image of God with value and dignity and must be respected. And in the book of Revelation, all the cultures, all the nations of the world bring their treasures into the kingdom. So it's not just diversity for diversity's sake. The Christian vision is unity in diversity in relationship based on a Trinitarian view of God and of his world.
I think that's really well said and, and very helpful, Stuart. I think there have been a number of times here in this past conversation where I've had some neat aha moments. Um, so where, how do we, so how do we lean forward here? What do we, what, so, you know, you, you, you talk about a region of the world that when you hear some people speaking those languages, you get, uh, your heart is warmed, um, by, by an affection there. What are, what should, so I guess maybe the question, what should we be praying for specifically? Like, what is your hope for the people involved in this conflict? And then as an American Christian, what is it that we should be looking for and longing for and praying for on behalf of the people involved in this? Yeah. Um, and maybe this is a transition in the, in the Cameron's question of, is there any hope in this at all? But what's, well, help me just based off of your experience, both living there and off of your spiritual maturity and, and leadership in the, in the Western church as well. What should we be longing for? I think at a very basic level, the first thing obviously is we want peace and we want uh, freedom for people to live their lives as freely as they can. We want to be aware of the needs of, of Russians for security, but I differentiate between the need of Russians and the, the need of Vladimir Putin. They're not the same thing, although he seems to think they are. Um, so there's a, a certain sense of which I think uh, the West is willing to wink, uh, take those security desires seriously and try to come up with some proposals but but at the moment it's an all or nothing equation where uh, you know people are being killed and being conquered and controlled seems the only agenda on in terms of Putin's side of this equation so my prayer is that these the Russians would stop that the forces internal to Russia that are also the Russian people many are re, are protesting on the street that that would um, uh, have an effect that for some reason they would stop what they're doing withdraw and allow the Ukrainians and then work for a negotiated peace. And then our, from then on, it'll be questions of helping rebuild. There's going to be lost lives. There's going to be a lot of money that needs to be spent and help. But that is, if any of that happens and each is conditional, then um, the next things can happen. But until there is peace, we, that's the number one, to stop the war and then start negotiating. So that would be where we have to begin, I believe. Well, just real quick, to, I think, can, can yeah. I interrupt Cameron before you wrap this up? Do, Do you, so. What's your, I mean, so I'm looking at the news. This is um, March 3rd. Um, my sense is this is going to get way uglier before it gets better. Without doubt. If I just had to read the news right now, is that is that a right read? With, yes. I mean, I mean without remember, some sort of serious change yes. in the plan, this is about to get ugly. The Russian way of doing battle, look at Grozny, look at Chechnya is they go, you, you swat a mosquito with uh, a shotgun. Um, so the Russian way, if they get resistance, will be to throw everything in there, use every kind of weaponry. And I mean, but the Ukrainians are fierce fighters, and but they're also, they're, they're outmanned, they're outgunned, but they have courage and they have the right on their side. So they will do a lot of damage to Russians, but the Russians will pour on and they have the weaponry to do so. And we need to pray that this will stop before it escalates into ever increasing the violence will go on and obviously the russians are uh, they want to win they need to win to uh, establish their goals so that can only keep increasing as far as i can see and they won't back off unless there are some serious threat or some internal reason that stops them from doing so this has been obviously a very sobering conversation as it should be 
And but it's I think it's it's our hope here that this has been not only informative to you, but also encouraging in the sense that we we recognize that as human beings, our responsibility before our Lord is to <laughs> continue turning to him for hope, for guidance, and also recognizing his sovereignty and his power, even in the midst of circumstances where he may seem very distant. And that story of the power of prayer that you shared, Dad, it's amazing how even when you share those, and you added some qualifications, of course, because you all of us can hear our, the inner critics screaming in our heads when we when we say things like that, because I think we're so tempted to want to fall back on, quote, practical, feasible solutions, 10 ways you can help the Ukrainians. And so I think there's no possible way to, quote, wrap this up. But maybe one takeaway here as well is that in our own habits, and I'm speaking particularly for those of us who are maybe younger, very active on social media, let's not do the American Western thing of turning this into some kind of a springboard for self-expression. It's been amazing. I've, we've seen quite a lot of that already. There was you know, a couple of different sort of critics had highlighted a number of people on Twitter who were taking basically using the Ukraine as a springboard into, well, see what this this says about, you know, COVID policy, see what this says about transphobia, see what this says about economic policy, and just whatever their partic- particular kind of angle was. Let's steer away from that, and let's actually honor the, the gravity of what's going on. And let's be in prayer and recognize our own, I think in some ways the importance is to recognize our own situatedness, the fact that we are in a particular place and time, and that if you're a Christian, the Lord has you here for a reason as well. But with that said, it really is impossible for me to entirely, to to wrap this up, but I think what would be helpful here for our listeners is if I give Stuart, known to me as Dad, the last word. I think when we look at history, we need to remember that the Bible is not just uh, a narrative. It's the whole story of creation, fall, redemption. The Bible opens with the words, in the beginning, God, and it ends with God having the final word. All of history is in his hands, and the, the New Testament reminds us that one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess. So there is a day coming. Judgment is real. God is real. And history will go to its grand conclusion. We don't have the means, the the, the tools, or the ability to deliver the, the final salvation. It is coming. It will come. It's in his hand. And God has the last word. And it's a good word for us all. Amen. Thank you so much, Dad, for talking with us, for answering our you know many, many questions can't promise that we won't do this to you again <laughs> but it's been a yeah, pleasure that's what talking I was just with thinking. <laughs> yeah yeah i think we're gonna have to have, definitely have Stuart on the podcast again but in case you missed it in all of this you are listening to thinking out loud a podcast where we think out loud about current events and christian hope just a reminder for those interested in dr sumner's course on the theology of evangelism don't forget to give us a shout out on your socials 
We'll pick a winner by March 5th. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book one of our speakers, or make a donation, visit thinkingoutloudtogether.com. And lastly, if you like our podcast, spread the word. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating. It really does help.